Our scripture is found this morning in Philemon, verses 18 through 25. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Artistarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. We're finishing up the series this morning entitled Runaway Grace. I'm excited about looking into God's Word, seeing what it says um, to us uh, this morning. Um, The last two sermons, especially uh, talking about the gospel, have just been so liberating for me. Um, Thinking about the fact that the gospel sets us free from worry, sets us free from fear and from guilt and from uh, approval and acceptance, all these things. And uh, it's just been doing a work in my heart. Um, this whole series and this book, and it's been so good um, as we look at it together this morning. I've been uh, deemed, I think, here uh, on our staff, at least uh, by Alan Michael, uh, that all of my analogies have to do with sports. Okay, I've heard that from several of you. Uh, you say, Adrian, all of your illustrations, or many of them, always have to do with the sports character. And to that I say, amen, because I love sports. And uh, I think many times sports, um, or, or a sport, or something about sports, are great ways, or is a great way to be able um, to relate to our world. And this morning is no different. Uh, in 2010, um, we experienced something in the sports world that even if you don't keep up with sports, you probably heard a little something about. Uh, and it was known on July the 8th as the decision. All right, for some of you, you know exactly what it is. Others, you're like, I'm still waiting for you to tell it. Uh, that was LeBron James uh, had become a free agent. King James, they call him. He had become a free agent. And uh, it was a big deal because is he going to stay in Cleveland, a, a sports team that for years has, has, has had uh, no championship, no hope? Is he going to stay there? And try to bring them something or will he leave? Well, national TV, um, there's loads of people in the room, millions of people watching on TV. And it was, it was not a very climactic hour because in the first two minutes you find out what he's going to do. And the next hour they just talk about the same old stuff. But in the first two minutes he says, I'm going to take my talents to South Beach. And uh, what that means is he was going to be uh, a member of the Miami Heat. And immediately, people in Cleveland, uh, you could Google this just, just at some point in Google. I would have if it probably uh, you know, didn't look so nonviolent. I would have showed it on, on here. But people in Cleveland began uh, burning his jersey. They, he has a big uh, plaque that's up or like this billboard that's him, you know, and it says King James. And they, they begin taking it down the next day. Uh, people are just angry. They say, how could you let us down like this? You've done our city wrong. Um, the owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers writes an open letter to LeBron James saying how it hurt him deeply and how it personally affected him. And he can't believe that he was turned his back on his, uh, essentially his hometown and his home state and people in Cleveland at that point hate LeBron James until 
until 2014 and not as big of a, of a, of a TV thing. I think he just kind of maybe sent it over some social media. He said he's returning home to Cleveland and those same Cleveland fans who were just four years earlier burning his jersey, what are they doing? They're painting posters. They're driving by his old house saying King James has returned. We're going to win a championship. The owner who had written an open letter saying, hey, I hate you is pretty much now said, hey, it's all good. You're going to bring me money. So now you're welcome back to this team and what happened just this past year they won a championship Cleveland the city that 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 pretty much is known for not winning anything won a championship because what did they do they brought LeBron James back and were okay with that these people who were burning his jersey saying you are dead to me you are useless now you not only come back and we can reconcile but you've been useful you've provided our team When it went to seven games, you provided us a championship, and you are now the man, the pinnacle of the basketball world, and we'll accept you back. Of course you will. But this morning, we're going to see that Paul, in the very same way, commanded or urged Philemon to do the same thing that the Cleveland Cavaliers did to LeBron James. He says, I want you to take him back. We're going to see all through this morning that despite what Onesimus has done to Philemon, Paul says, I don't care. I want you to receive him back. I want you to take him back to yourself. This morning, what we're going to see, it's all about restoring what's broken. Restoring what's broken. There's a relationship between Onesimus and Paul, or Onesimus and Philemon. And it's been broken. And now we're going to see this morning how to restore what is broken? You see, some of you sitting here this morning and, and, and you, uh, you've been hurt. Maybe you've been hurt. Um, maybe you've been like Philemon and someone has hurt you deeply and you're trying to decide what to do next. Maybe you sit in here this morning and you've been on the Onesimus end of things and you know you've offended someone and you don't know if you should approach them or how you can approach them or, or what to do. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and, and because someone has hurt you or wronged you, you, you are, are, are filled with, with, with anger or resentment toward that person. And you can't seem to figure out what to do. This morning we're going to see that though we live in a broken world, though we live in a world full of uh, marred relationships, it's only with the gospel through the gospel that we can actually truly forgive. You see, forgiveness, true, total forgiveness can only happen through the gospel. It's impossible without it. Total forgiveness can only happen in the gospel. You see, uh, forgiveness doesn't just uh, happen um, by some other means. It happens because you understand the gospel. We may read things in psychology today, but you see, the Bible, though ancient, And its composition is very relevant to even the 21st century. And it has more to say about forgiveness and how we live with those people who have wronged us or that we've wronged. It has more to say about that than any new article that's come out even yesterday. So let's look at it this morning. We're going to see one truth this morning. And we're going to see several of its implications. But we're going to look at one truth that Paul tells Philemon. And that truth is this. Forgive And receive, forgive and receive. You see, that sounds easy, or that sounds basic. Yeah, the Bible talks about forgiveness. 
We're going to realize this morning that restoration, forgiveness, a broken relationship doesn't, isn't as necessarily as basic as it may seem. You see, Paul says, if you are my partner, Philemon, I want you to do this for me. We spent the last couple of weeks seeing about Paul, the case Paul made for the gospel. Onesimus, the, the useless runaway slave, has now, is now a restored brother. Philemon, he's, he's now somebody who has received the gospel, so I want you to do this one thing for me. I want you to take him back. I want you to take him back. Whatever he owes you, I want you to, to cancel that and take him back. What does that, what does that teach us already? Well, chances are, uh, Onesimus, when he ran away from Philemon, he didn't just run away. He didn't just say, hey, I'm going to get out of here. He probably took as much as he possibly could and decided to give nothing back. So he probably took as much money as he could, as many resources as he could, and then he ran from his owner. So he took as much as possible. And you see, Onesimus, though he had wronged Philemon, um, Paul is saying, take him back. You see, Philemon, as, as, the, as the owner of Onesimus, what could he have done? He could have, he could have not only just maybe had him thrown in prison, he could have had him punished, he, he could have had him put to death. Because not only did he run away, but he took from him. You see, he's been wronged. Philemon's been wronged. He's been done uh, dirty. And Paul says to Philemon, take him back. You know, we, we read that and, and we say, yeah, you know, that's, that's the right thing to do. Philemon, you should take him back. But we shouldn't approach this text of the Bible and saying, yeah, love and forgiveness, man, they sound great. But what happens when the rubber meets the road? And Onesimus has wronged Philemon and he has done him dirty. He has taken from him. He has uh, ran from him. And Paul says, despite all that, you culturally can have him killed. You, you, you maybe by your own natural desire, you want to have him punished. But I want you to receive him back and forgive him. You see, this idea runs counter to what we want to do. This idea runs counter to our culture. It runs counter to, to, to the way even we think. How difficult is it to forgive someone when they have wronged you? What's the line we, we often use? Forgive and forget. But often that's not saying I'm going to forgive you and then forget about it. It's meaning I'm going to forgive, quote unquote, forgive you and then forget you. You see, and that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, I want you to receive him back because though he has wronged you, he is now a brother in Christ and you not only should forgive him, you need to reconcile with him. The idea of if you do me wrong, I'm through with you is not biblical. If you do me wrong, I'm done. That's not biblical. Now that doesn't mean you let people take advantage of you. And if somebody is just taking your money and they continually take your money and take your money, you just let them because you're saying I'm forgiven. You know, that's just not smart. You don't let people take advantage, but Paul says you need to forgive him because he has wronged you. Philemon, if you consider yourself a partner of mine in the gospel, therefore a partner of Jesus, take him back. And whatever he owes you, guess what? What does Paul say? He says, I'll pay it back. But then he says something else. He says something, not, not only that, he says, uh, Philemon, I want you to, to take him back and whatever he owes you. I want you, I'll pay it back, but I want to remind you of something. You owe me so much more 
This is my favorite part of the passage because Paul does two things. One, he's about to paint a picture of the gospel, which is so clear and so easy to see. But secondly, he kind of one-ups Philemon. Here's what he does. He says, uh, Paul's plan is this. He says, put his debt on my account, but then cancel it. So Philemon's probably reading this letter at this point thinking, okay, Paul, you're not making a lot of sense, but okay. He says, uh, yeah, uh, Onesimus owed you a material debt, but guess what, Uh, Philemon? Paul says, you owe me a spiritual debt. Onesimus, he owes you a a temporal debt. Philemon, you owe me an eternal debt. Why is that? Because Paul showed Philemon Christ. You see, before, uh, before Philemon had met Paul, guess what? He didn't have Christ. He didn't, he didn't have the gospel. He didn't have hope. He didn't have salvation. But now Paul had given him the gospel and the knowledge of Jesus. And that, in turn, has given him eternal life in Christ. And Paul says, how can you ever repay me back? So whatever Onesimus owes you, charge it to me because the gospel that I shared with you has saved you from death and hell and given you an eternity with God in heaven. Therefore, Philemon, you take him back. He's saying, look, man, whatever wrongdoing he's, he's owed, like I know it's a big deal, Philemon, but look, I don't mean to like bring anything up, but you just need to, you need, you need to cancel it because you owe me a lot. It's kind of like when somebody says, I don't mean to brag and they proceed to tell you all the good things they've done. That's kind of what Paul's doing here. He says, look, I don't mean to say that, that you owe me anything, but guess what? You, you owe me something. You owe me something so much more than Onesimus does. So that's the argument Paul is making. He says, you need to forgive him. And he could have used his apostolic authority and said, look, I'm an apostle, so you should listen to me. But instead, he says, no, I want to use some different reasoning. I've given you the gospel. Jesus has saved you. Therefore, you need to forgive. But Paul then points out very, very clearly the why. Because we could sit there and say, man, Adrian, I know the Bible says to forgive. I know that we probably should, but sometimes that's just hard. What's the basis of forgiveness? Why should I forgive somebody if they've wronged me? And Paul is about to make this clear. He says, Philemon, I know you've been wronged. I know Onesimus may have hurt you, but don't hold it against him. Don't hold him accountable for it because I'll take care of it. And seeing as how Jesus has forgiven you of so much more, how can you hold this against him? You see, Philemon could have had Onesimus flogged, imprisoned, put to death, but Paul argues that he should be forgiven and once again restored friendship. He reminded Philemon of the grace that had been given to him through Christ and how even though he deserved eternity in hell, instead God gave him the eternal riches of glory in Christ through the gospel. Therefore, how can you not forgive someone who's done far less to you than you've done to God? You see, that's the idea here. When we understand how much we've been forgiven, how can we not forgive someone when they've done something to us? Colossians 3.13 says, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. But you say, Adrian, I don't understand. you don't understand, man. I've been hurt by somebody deeply. They've hurt me more than anybody else has ever hurt me. She lied to me. He ruined my reputation. He cost me my job. They broke the hearts of my family. How then can I forgive? 
When someone has wronged me and hurt me so deeply, how am I able to do that? How am I able to do that? You see, forgiveness is not a game of let's pretend. Oh, it just wasn't that bad. That's easy to say if somebody just kind of kind of say a, a coworker just kind of says a little something behind your back and you're like, well, I like them a whole lot, so I'll kind of let it slide. But what if that coworker says something about you that costs your job? You can't just look over that and say, that's okay. When somebody's hurt you deeply, forgiveness, true, total forgiveness is something that's so hard to be given out. You can't just go through it by sheer willpower. You see, modern psychology will tell you that I looked up this week, like how to forgive. Looked it up on Google and most of it just said, change your mindset. Well, that's kind of hard when somebody has really done you wrong. I'm just going to change my mindset and begin to love that person. Why? Because eventually you'll keep remembering what they've done and you'll keep remembering it. And eventually you can't get over what they've done to you. So how then are we to forgive? How do we forgive and receive someone who has wronged us? How can we be reconciled to that person? It begins by understanding the gospel. Paul says this, he says, whatever he owes, charge it to my account. You see, this wasn't original to Paul. Paul didn't come up with a good thought and say, man, this is going to be so good. Philemon's going to love this. Charge his debt to my account. No, he got it from Jesus. Paul got this idea from Jesus. God didn't look at mine and your sin, the sin that we've committed against God. He didn't look and say, hey, guys, I'm just going to choose to forget it. Like I know that you've done me wrong and you've done things that I've said not to do. So I'm just going to look over it. No, God didn't look at our sin and do that. Instead, God looked at our sin and said, you know what? Your sin, the wrong things that you've done against my character and against who I am, that deserves punishment, that deserves death, and that deserves eternity in hell. Yeah, you don't deserve to be forgiven. I don't deserve to be forgiven. My sin was against the holy God. So even though my sin was punishable by death, God looked and said, I don't want to punish you. Even though you've sinned against me, God said, I don't want to punish you. Yes, you deserve death. Yes, you deserve hell. Yes, you deserve punishment, but I don't want that for you. And in God's perfect love and grace, he sent Jesus to die in our place as our substitute for our sins so that we would no longer be condemned. That's what God did. Colossians 2 13 and 14 says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. In other words, you were like a spiritual corpse. God made alive with him, having forgiven our trespasses by, listen to this, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. On the cross, Jesus looked at God and said, whatever they owe, charge it to me. Whatever you owe, whatever sin you have committed was nailed to Jesus when he was on the cross. Jesus says, charge it to me. Those who are disobedient to their parents, who dishonor their parents, charge that to me. Those who have cheated on their spouse, charge that to me. Those who are addicted to pornography, charge that to me. Those who have made a shady business deal, charge that to me. The liar who continually lies, Jesus says, charge that to me. And that is the gospel. That is what Paul says should drive our forgiveness of others. When we acknowledge that we owe a debt, 
When we owe God a debt, but it was paid in full by Jesus, not by you being a good person, not by you finally having a good enough works to outweigh your bad works. It was charged to Jesus when he was nailed to a cross. And instead of you approaching God as a criminal who has sinned against him instead, now those who are in Christ and who have trusted in Christ for their salvation can approach God as a son or daughter of the king of the universe. You see, the penalty of, of, of someone's sin against me was like Mackie Mountain standing behind us uh, in comparison to the Mount Everest of debt that I owed God. You see, what I've committed against God was so much greater and so many more times than what someone has committed against me. The penalty of your sin against God was paid in Jesus Christ. And listen to this, the penalty of someone's sin against you was also paid in Christ. Not just the, our sin, the sin of someone against you was paid in Jesus. You see, it's easy to say, man, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain and he washed me white as snow. But what about sin? Jesus has paid their sin against me. Jesus has, has paid uh, their sin against what they've done to me. That's a little bit more difficult to say. And Paul says, you've got to understand that you've been forgiven so much more before you can even think about truly forgiving someone else. Seems reasonable to think of God forgiving our sin, but it's a little more difficult whenever we think about forgiving others. Think about a time when you've been wronged, you've been done dirty, you've been hurt deeply, and it caused anger, bitterness, sadness. It caused worry, it caused fear. Some of you, maybe even you have those, those thoughts, those emotions kind of coming back. Or you can picture the person or the people that have essentially sinned against you and done you wrong. Now, uh, multiply that times over 100 billion people. There's been roughly 108 billion people to have lived on the earth. And that's what God forgave when he nailed Jesus to a cross. God forgave so much more than what we are expected to forgive. Forgiving someone who has hurt you deeply is impossible unless you've embraced the gospel. Only when you embrace the gospel, you see you and I have committed just terrible crimes against God, but yet God chose to forgive it. Therefore, how can we not forgive others? That's Paul's logic. We see that in, in Matthew 18, 21 through 35. I think you'll see it on your screen. The parable, Jesus tells a story, the parable of the unforgiving servant, the ungrateful servant, I guess you could say. I'll read it to us. It says, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. See, Peter thought he was doing a good job. He said, man, if if he sins against me and I forgive him seven times, I'm doing great. And Jesus says, I don't say seven times, but 77 times. In other words, this just number that you can't really reach. That's what Jesus says. Peter probably was like, wow, I thought I was really good. And I just realized Jesus just blew my world up. And Jesus says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's a lot of money. I'll explain in just a second. Since he cannot pay his master, he ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children, all that he had and, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. I will pay you everything. You see, the problem with this is he wouldn't ever be able to pay everything. Let's just say for a second, the, um, the average yearly wage is $30,000. 
then what it says this guy owes, the 10,000 talents, is essentially $6 billion. Okay, you can win the lottery and still owe way more than $6 billion. All right, this guy owes his master so much money, he can never pay it back. And he says, I'll pay it, I'll pay it. And the master says, you know what? You can't. But it said in verse 27, out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. Wow, that master was owed $6 billion and his, he, just, he just forgave it. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants that owed him a, a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. In other words, he came up on somebody that owed somewhere between eight and $12,000. And he starts choking him and saying, you need to pay me what you owe. He had just been forgiven $6 billion and somebody owes him, let's say $10,000. And he begins to just beat him down and choke him and saying, you pay me now. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will forgive you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. In other words, forever, because he would never be able to pay that much back. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You see, Jesus is making this statement. Paul is making this point that we must understand we've been forgiven so much more than what anybody has ever done to us. Therefore, we must forgive. Practically speaking, forgiveness isn't about just saying everything's good. And we can say, hey man, we're cool. Everything, everything's all right. But you might still hold something against that person. You see, I, I have a phrase for that. I just, I think it's one we can easily remember. That's forgiveness flattery. What's flattery? Flattery is telling somebody that something they want to hear. When you forgive someone, but really you are still holding that against them, you're just doing nothing more than flattery because you still hold that person, what they've done against you, you still hold it against them. See, here's one indicator. This is one clear indicator to see how you understand the gospel when it comes to forgiveness. How do you forgive others? How do you forgive others? Husbands, when you argue with your wife about how much she spent on something and you say, I've forgiven you. But then next month before she goes out, you say, hey, don't do what you did last month. Have you forgiven her? Wives, when, when, when your husband says something to you that, that, that hurts you. And you say, no, it's okay. I, I've, I've forgiven you. But then uh, y'all get in another discussion or argument. And all of a sudden she brings back up what you said before. Wife, have you forgiven him? Because saying I forgive you and actually letting that, what that person has done against you go, not holding that against them is two different things. Teenagers, whenever uh, you, you tell someone you forgive them, but then immediately you go and talk about them behind their back. As if they've still done that against you. Have you forgiven them? You see, forgiveness is the brutal reality that you were wronged. But you choose not to hold that wrong against that person. Because your vast sin against God wasn't held against you. That's what forgiveness is. 
This man in, uh, I think it was 2002, his name was uh, Gary. He was linked to the murder of over 48 uh, women in the Washington state area. And it took him about 20 years for him to finally be caught. And he finally was. And during his trial, Gary, he just remained remorseless and cold. During his whole trial, he, he had no emotion whatsoever. Family members of, of people he had killed came to the podium and spoke of their hatred of this man. They, they, they couldn't stand him. And, 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 and what they would say to him were, I hate you. And you've hurt us so much. I will never forgive you. And he would just stare and remain cold and remorseless. But Robert Rule was the man's name. His, his uh, 16-year-old daughter had, had been killed by this man. And he got up to finally say something. And his thoughts, he wanted to express his thoughts, which were much different than everyone else. He says, uh, the guy's name was Gary Ridgway. He says, Mr. Ridgway, there are people here who hate you. I'm not one of them. I forgive you for what you've done. You've made it difficult to live up to what I believe. And that is that God, what God says to do, and that is forgive. And he doesn't say forgive to certain people. He says, forgive all. So, sir, you are forgiven. And at that point, this remorseless, cold, serial killer began to weep. And in that courtroom, uh, uh, every, everything stopped because he couldn't stop weeping. Because someone, though they had been brutally hurt by this man's action, decided that God had forgiven him of so much more. How could he not forgive this man of even a terrible crime against his family? You see, that seems kind of out there. So let me make this idea of forgiveness even more personal. What's interesting about this passage is that Onesimus likely or could have delivered this letter to Philemon. So let's just say, for instance, you are at home one Saturday morning and all of a sudden you're drinking your coffee. You're, you're, you're just having a good time, maybe reading the paper if that's what you do or, or whatever you do on Saturday morning. And you just hear a knock. You, you, you hear a knock on your door and, and you get up because nobody usually knocks on your door at that time in the morning. <clears throat> and you open the door. And as you open that door, you look right into the face of the person who has hurt you more than anybody ever has. And that's the person you see. And the one thing you want to do besides punch them in the nose is tell them how bad they are and slam the door in their face. But right before you're able to do that, they, they have this, this envelope and, and, they, and they hand it to you. And, and you look at them and you're like, what in the world is going on? And you grab that envelope and you begin to open this piece of paper. And as you open that piece of paper, you, you read the following words. I know the person who has just handed you that letter has hurt you deeply and caused you more pain than you can ever imagine. But I can empathize. Whatever they owe, whatever that person has done to you, it was charged to me when I was nailed to the cross. Whatever that person has done was charged to me. Forgive them. Forgive them for what they've done because guess what? I was also nailed because of your transgression too. Therefore, I want you to take them in just as you would take me in. At the very bottom, it's signed, Jesus. At that moment, 
how would you respond? How, how would we respond? Forgiveness sounds great, and it is great. Many of you have been granted forgiveness for things you've done wrong, but when you've been done wrong and the rubber meets the road, forgiveness is difficult unless we have embraced the gospel. Unless we have understood the gospel. You see, some of you sitting here this morning and you are maybe bitter because someone has hurt you. You're angry. You think back to to things that have happened and that person has treated you poorly, terribly. That person you know has done you wrong and you are resentful and bitter toward them. Can I just say this first off, that bitterness never draws us closer to God. Bitterness will never draw us closer to God. It's like a toxic emotion that I've often heard said, it's like you drinking poison, hoping the other person will die. Maybe you feel that way this morning. What fixes bitterness is not you becoming a better person or you just trying to overlook that situation and and be nice to that person. What fixes bitterness is understanding that Jesus, when he died on the cross, leveled the playing field and your sin against him was greater than their sin against you. And if he forgave that, you also should forgive. That's what Jesus said. You see, forgiveness is not holding someone's sin against them. You've removed the guilt. Forgiving someone is to remove the guilt. So what are the implications when this happens? What happens whenever we forgive or someone forgives us? God is praised and exalted. When we forgive and receive somebody back or someone forgives us and receives us back, God is praised and exalted. You want God to be praised? Reconcile with someone who's done you wrong. Paul says, refresh my heart, Philemon. I want you to do something for me. Receive him back. God is praised and exalted. Some of you, you need to go home this afternoon and you need to think about a phone call that you need to make. Or maybe you know there's somebody tomorrow that you're going to see that you need to have a conversation with because the way they have hurt you. And that's coming to your mind now and you know that's what I've got to do. And Paul uh, expressed extreme confidence to Philemon. He says, I know you're going to do so much more. Just picture being there 2,000 years ago and Onesimus shows up to the door and he's standing before Philemon and possibly the entire church that met at Philemon's house and the converted slave with tears running down his face seeking reconciliation. And Philemon standing in front of not just Onesimus but other people all around him If he would have demonstrated a selfish heart and decided not to forgive, not only would it have had an impact on Onesimus, it would have had an impact on people around him. People would have seen this man is not willing to forgive, but instead, I'm like Paul. I think that Philemon forgave him that day and forgiveness flowed in that house that day and God was glorified in that situation. Onesimus, the once runaway thief, slave, is now a brother And the way that he approached Philemon is the same way we can approach God, not in fear and insecurity, but out of acceptance because God, through Jesus, has forgiven our sin. Second implication, forgiven people get a second chance. We love second chances. We love stories of second chances. We, we, I would have choos- chosen another sports story, but I don't want to do that. Uh, we love second chances. We like getting 
second chances. And what's cool about this is the church father Ignatius, who was in the late first century, early second century, wrote of the bishop of Ephesus being one named Onesimus. Now we could say that could have been anybody else, but the thing is that name wouldn't have been a name that most bishops or, or priests would have had in that day. So church tradition says that Onesimus became the, the bishop of one of the major churches in the ancient world. Forgiving people, forgiven people get a second chance. This also means that you and I should do what I struggled to do for years. For, for up, and, up until God began to work in me about two years ago, I never gave people the benefit of the doubt, ever. And, and this passage isn't directly teaching us that, but one principle we can take from it is we should always, as God has done us, give people the benefit of the doubt first. Third implication is this, true gospel fellowship is restored whenever people are forgiven. See, this should be the guiding principle of any church Forgive and receive. The motivation of forgiveness is not because you're told to do so. It's because God has forgiven you. So some of you uh, today, you need to heed the call of radical forgiveness like Paul urged Philemon. And forgive. Others of you, you feel like the runaway slave who, who others may have abandoned you and And you don't know that you can receive the salvation from God. So first, if you're a Christian, you need to understand that in Christ you are forgiven. God is no longer holding your sin against you. And that's one of the best places to begin and one of the first places you'll ever feel free. If you are a Christian and you know Jesus, God is not holding your sin against you. You may already know Christ But you don't understand that like Onesimus was given a second chance and he fulfilled God's purpose for his life. God has a purpose for you to live on mission for him. And he has created you in Christ so that you would be a person who lives not only for him, but lives to glorify him. Others of you sitting here this morning and you want to know and have a relationship with the God who would forgive you of everything you've ever done. You sit here and you think, How could somebody who I've sinned against a million times still choose to, without me trying to become better, choose to forgive me even when I was a sinner, wiping my slate clean, making me a brand new person? And you're asking the question, how can I know that God? You know that God by admitting that you are guilty of sin. Your sin has separated you from God. You believe and trust that Jesus has paid for your sin as your substitute. You then turn from your sin and you confess Jesus to be Lord over your life, saving you from your sin. That's how you know him. That's how you know him. I want to close this morning with a verse that, that, that spoke to me this past summer. And God is still using this in my life right now. Isaiah 43, 25. Listen to these words. This is God speaking to his people. He says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. I'm the one who blots out your transgressions for my sake. And I will not remember your sin. If God himself will choose not to hold our sin against us. 
May we be a people who choose to forgive those whom God has already forgiven and be a part of restoring what's broken. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that despite our our sinful acts, our sinful deeds, the sin in our own lives, Jesus, you were nailed to a cross so that those things would be forgiven. 